Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. If you bought GameStop, GameStop as a stock last week when it was at the height of the, this internet frenzy. Well, I, I'm sorry, <laughs> but but you you were warned. Um, <clears throat> as we were talking about, what, what happened is you have a, a mob of like internet day traders that found a couple of these platforms that they could buy stock on without having to pay a commission. And so what they would do is they would get together and they would target stocks. And they would just agree among themselves, let's buy this stock. It doesn't matter what the stock should be worth. It doesn't matter what the stock's fundamentals are. Let's just keep buying it and buying it and buying it. And maybe what we'll do is we'll, we'll hurt some of the investment firms that are have, have done what they call short selling, which is where they've been betting that the stock would go down. We'll hurt them. We'll, we'll make a whole bunch of money. And so you had a couple small stocks that normally were not traded very often, but but they got bid up with this irrational sort of thing. We don't care what the stock is worth. We're just going to spend money. And GameStop was the the example of it. GameStop, for people who might not be familiar with this, it's these stores that you find in kind of failing malls that sell video games. This is like investing in Blockbuster Video in 2021. I mean, what, what is the market for people who are actually going to physically go to brick-and-mortar stores and, and buy a video game. Well, it, it's it's not exactly like it's a, a growth market. First of all, people don't go to stores, as a general rule, that much anymore. Secondly, people, if they want video games, they either buy them online or now you can just download them and stream them. You don't even need that. And, and third... It's the whole concept of the the video game industry. What is the future of that? Estimates say that the stock objectively is worth about 14 bucks a share when you consider all their assets and the growth potential, etc. Last Thursday, the stock was trading for up to $480 a share because you had all these traders who were just simply saying, I'm going to buy the stock, and then I'm going to count on all my friends, everybody else in this Internet community, they're going to keep buying the stock as well. So it doesn't matter if I paid $300 for a share of stock, it's going to keep going up. And we're going to have this implicit agreement that we're going to, we're going to keep the stock till it goes up to 1000 etc., etc. Well, okay, but years and years ago, I used to co-host the Saturday show that we had, our money talk show, and before Annex Wealth Management did it, um, my friend Bob Landis from Landis and Company did it, and Bob always used to say, you know, if you want to invest, invest. If you want to gamble, go to Las Vegas, because at least you get a drink and a show with your money, and that's what I was kind of thinking, because when you are just throwing money at a game stop stock or some of the other ones as well and and you're just counting on the fact that there's no fundamentals behind this there's no real growth it's just i'm counting on the internet mob to keep bidding this up and up and up that's like gambling i mean that that's like gambling except you know that you're going to lose unless you know exactly when you get out of it so as of thursday GameStop was trading, like I say, at $483 a share. Right now, I just pulled it up. 
it's at $101. Now, I mean, granted, given that it's worth 14 if you bought it sometime early on, if you bought it between that 14 and the $101, yes, you can still get out. And you can you can make some money. And, and yes, if you bought it at three hundred and were smart enough to know to sell when it was at four hundred and twenty dollars, yeah, you, you made some money. And there's stories out there about people who who did make some money because they got in and then they got out at the right time. But if you jumped into this stock and started buying it, say last Tuesday, last Wednesday, last Thursday, at the height of this euphoria that was going on, and you didn't get out at the right time, you're getting killed. And and it's that's going to be the story. It's Early on, it was some of these hedge funds that maybe had bet that it was going down. Now it's these individual investors, these folks that thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to jump in. It's 300 bucks. I don't care. I'm going to ride this to the high. Look, it's $480 on Thursday. It's going to end up at 1000 Well, no, it's at $101 now, and my guess is it's going to – I can't tell you when it's going to get back down to 14 but my guess is it is at some point in time going to get back down to 14 because that's where the real value of the stock is. So the bottom line of all this, I had somebody who texted me yesterday and actually shared it. They, they had apparently owned GameStop. They even forgot. He said he had a few shares of GameStop stop stock that he had for 15 years, had completely forgotten about it, saw what the price was, called his broker and sold it. Okay, that, that's the smart sort of thing. But if you're one of these investors that's out there thinking, hey, I, I'm going to take advantage of this, I'm going to pile in, and I'm going to pay outrageous amounts for GameStop or for AMC, the, the failing movie chain, or for Koss headphones, <clears throat> or for some of these other like small companies, if you want to do it, just understand that what goes up does, in fact, come down. And there's a lot of small investors who got greedy, who thought that, hey, we're going to be able to make a fortune on this, and now they're finding that instead of making a fortune, they're losing thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, which is the danger when you go down this route. You have been warned. When we come back... Let's talk about the car theft epidemic in Milwaukee and what some people don't think should happen. We'll discuss in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Welcome back. So very glad to have you with us. How can I say this nicely? A slap on the wrist is not solving the problem, and city leaders need to wake up to that. Journal Sentinel has a very interesting piece today. Motor vehicle thefts in Milwaukee. Car thefts. Now we're not talking about carjackings, which are up as well. I mean, but this is this isn't, you know, you go up and you stick a gun in somebody's face and you take their car. This is just your, your straightforward car theft, whether it's breaking into the car and hot wiring it or finding the car running or, or whatever. Car thefts in Milwaukee are up 152 percent. And that's from that's from a high last year as well. I mean, here's the deal. The numbers are just absolutely amazing. As of Tuesday, 808 vehicles have been stolen in Milwaukee. That's a 152% increase when compared to the same time in 2020. Okay, what, what is today's date? Today is February 3rd. 808 vehicles stolen. 
808 vehicles. Vehicle thefts are up 140% or more in five of the seven Milwaukee police districts. Downtown, 48 car thefts. That's a 140% increase. Um, District 3, which is the city's west side, 94 car thefts, 141% increase. District 4, which is the northwest corner, 141 car thefts. That's a 152% increase. District 5, which is the north side of Milwaukee, 147 car thefts. That is a 259% year-to-year increase. 259%. District 7, which is on the city's northwest side, 239 car thefts. That's a 219% increase. District 2, which is the near south side, they, they win the prize. The lowest percentage of car thefts, 74. That's only 21% higher. It is a heck of a statement. When you look at what is going on in the city of Milwaukee and you say, hey, we've got a district that only has a 21% increase in car theft, hey, they win the prize for being the safest. Authorities say that they're seeing a rash of thefts of Kias, Hyundais, and Hondas, mostly Kias, because some late model Kias apparently are, are relatively easy to steal, and the punks, the young people, have figured it out. Um, apparently, with Kias, you can break. This is what this. I'm, I'm not giving thieves any sort of you know special insight. They know this already. Apparently, Kia thieves know that they can break out the back window without setting out an alarm, unlock the door, peel back the steering column, and use a screwdriver or USB port to crank the car. So, in other words, hot wiring it. It's so bad that Enterprise Rental Car has even started hiding Kias on their lots because they're so afraid that they're going to be stolen. Nationally, Milwaukee is 12th on the list of all the metropolitan areas with the highest rate of vehicle theft. Now, sometimes, sometimes when these cars are stolen, they are taken on joyrides. That's it. We're just going to steal somebody's car and we're taking on a joyride. Other times, the cars are stolen and then they're used to commit other sorts of, of crimes. So it, it's, it's a variety of this. And the other thing that they are finding is, no surprise, a large number of the people who are stealing the cars are, wait for it, what's the word? Juveniles. It, it's kids that are out there stealing cars. And in many cases, they're stealing cars over and over and over again. And so the question becomes, what do we do in this particular situation? And and who should we care about? Do we care about the car thief or do we care about the victim? Now, for some people, if you have your car stolen, it is an invasion uh, you, you feel like you're invaded, but, but it, it's not the end of the world because maybe you've got car insurance, maybe you come from a two-car family, so your car gets stolen. And it's going to be an inconvenience, but you're going to call your insurance carrier, and what they're going to do is they're going to pay for your rental car, and you're going to replace the car. And, it's again, it's an inconvenience, and you've been victimized, but it, it's not the end of the world. For other people, it is. Because, for example, if you don't have access to another car, how are you going to get to work? And if maybe the car, from a theft perspective, is underinsured or whatever, all right, you're, you're really hurting because you have to try to figure out, okay, where am I going to get the money to replace this? So it's a big deal for the victims. In Milwaukee, though, 
We don't give a rat's rump about the victims. What we are apparently more concerned about is the people that are stealing the cars. In the Journal Sentinel story, they quote Reggie Moore, who's the director of Milwaukee's Office of Violent Pre- uh, Prevent- Violence Prevention. And he says, well, okay, there's a lot of reasons why this is happening. We've got kids who are going on a joyride. Some are stealing them to commit other crimes. But then he says, you know, we, we've got to get them to understand that they're putting their lives in danger when they participate in negative behavior. And then this is the money quotation of the whole story. Moore, and this is the guy who runs Milwaukee's Office of Violence Prevention, says he is opposed to charging young car thieves in adult court because studies show that developing adolescent brains don't assess risk and consequences of an action clearly. Some of the mistakes made by young people are more outside of their control than we think. (laughs) Okay, well, gee, you're 16 years old. You've just stolen your ninth car. Well, I we've got to be sorry because you're only 16 and you can't process this is the, you can't process the risks and consequences clearly and, and it, it's beyond your control that you're taking a crowbar or a baseball bat breaking in the window of somebody else's car climbing in, hot wiring in, driving off at 95 miles an hour and blowing through a red light. Moore says I'm not saying they shouldn't be punished. But we need to understand that there are other factors in play when we are talking about young people. Yeah, there's other factors. Maybe it's poor parenting. Maybe it's a lack of impulse control. Maybe it's the fact that they just don't care at all about anybody beside themselves. But the bottom line is this slap on the wrist approach, this we're not going to send people to adult court, this we're only going to say, okay, well, gee, you've only stolen eight cars now. Here, we're going to put you on double secret probation. It's not working. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We don't need to charge car thieves in adult court, at least according to the director of Milwaukee's Office of Violence Prevention. I say nuts to that. Let's start being all about protecting victims. And anybody who's ever had their car stolen can undoubtedly tell you the horror stories and the frustrations that you go through this. And do you feel that we should just be slapping the perpetrators on the wrists and saying, saying, hey, you're 15 or 16 years old. I, I, I know you don't understand the consequences of taking that baseball bat, breaking out the window, stealing the car, and driving through an intersection at 90 miles an hour. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a minute. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Paula in Milwaukee. Paula, good afternoon. About a month ago, uh, my niece got her car stolen. About six in Oklahoma. And um, my brother, her father, went around to look for it ever since then. He actually found it. Weeks later, called the police. Make the long story short, in the in her car was found an application with name and address, cigars, which probably would have had DNA on it, and also mm-hmm. an ATM slip. She brought it to the police station, and they said, yeah, we're, we're not really going to do anything because... <laughs> Kind of just be thankful you got your car back. We just had like five, six hundred cars stolen in the last month, so we 
aren't going to really do yeah. anything about that. So she just took the stuff home. I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah. You're kind of saying, well, well, go ahead and do it again. You're okay. Well, they are. They're, no, there's, there's no, they're, Paula, they're not kind of saying that. They are saying that. And part of the frustration that the police have, and I will tell you this because I talk to a lot of them, is even if they try to run this down and they try to track it down and they catch somebody, they're not going to do anything to them anyways. They're not going to be prosecuted. You're lucky if they're treated as a juvenile, in which case they'll be put into juvenile court, and it doesn't no matter how many times they've stolen cars, they'll be told, okay, well, we're going to send you back to your parents. Don't do this again. And, of course, if nothing else, it Boldens them. Meanwhile, um, you, this was your niece that had a car stolen. You know, she she's victimized. She's she's going around trying. She's without a car. She's trying to find the car. Nobody cares about her. Nobody cares about her. All we do is care about the punks that are stealing the cars. So thanks for the call. It's just it, it's this ongoing frustration that, that's out there, and I understand some people are frustrated with the police, and I get it. I mean, this the the police who, by the way, in the city of Milwaukee, were, were limiting the number of them, and again, it, it's it's one of these things where oh, your, your car was stolen, well, okay, f- fill out a report, and and maybe we'll try to track people down. But the bottom line of this is there there is no accountability at all, and unfortunately, this is the attitude that you're starting to get from city officials as well. And if I lived in the city of Milwaukee, particularly in some of these hard-hit areas, this attitude that, well, you know, we just need to be more understanding of the car thieves, I would find that to be frustrating in the extreme. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. These numbers really are staggering. For all of 2020, In the city of Milwaukee, there were slightly under 4,000 cars that were stolen for the whole year. We're now in early February, and already this year, there have been over 800 cars that have been stolen. That, That comes out to, if you do the math, like 20 to 25 cars a day. A day, and the city's head of violence prevention is saying, "Well, you know, I, I'm not in favor of charging these young people, and a lot, not all of them, but a lot of the auto thefts. And we're not talking about carjackings; we're just talking about the plain auto thefts. A lot of them are committed by juveniles, and in many cases, it's juveniles who are doing this over and over and over again. And the head of violence prevention says, "Well, I mean, I just don't think we charge these people in adult court because studies show that developing adolescent brain." don't assess risk and consequences of an action clearly. So in other words, the 16-year-old doesn't understand it's wrong to take a baseball bat and break out somebody's car windows and steal it. Look, my point is, unless unless we get a handle on this, you've got a city that is almost unlivable. And if you look at where a lot of these car thefts are coming, they're from some of the more impoverished areas of the city where it creates a huge, huge problem for the people who are the victims. Why don't we give a rat's rump about the victims? Is that too much to ask? Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello, Jeff. Uh, You're exactly right. Uh, One of the reasons why we have an increase of of crime, especially juvenile crime in the city, is because of the catch and release policy that we have have, have in in the city. Uh, The the, the fact is is that you have to punish these individuals. And if you have habitual habitual criminals out here, habitual car thieves, they have to be sent to jail. They have to be sent to prison. Now, I, I disagree with you that they have to be sent to to uh, 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 to be uh, put into to, uh, to adult court, 
I think the fact is, unless they uh, carjack with a gun or harm an individual, I think that 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 should be uh, held for that. But I think what if, that, okay, let me stop you there. What, what, what if there are multiple car theft? What what if this isn't the fifteen year old that's found the car that's running and taken it for a joyride? But what if this is the fifteen year old and this is the eighth or ninth car that they've boosted and that they've been through the system and they've been warned? In that case, do you put them in adult court? No. The fact is that we that's where we have state state uh, juvenile facilities for. The fact is, is that you you, uh, you have to stay doing a facility for, and so you put them you put them in those particular areas. You cannot send them back home. I said that's been the problem. You catch and release them. If if you if you stolen a car for the eighth time, the fact is the fact is you you're not being punished. The fact is you're being released every time you steal a car, and and so and so the fact is you need to have these individuals put in facilities and state facilities and hopefully get them off the street and show that, that hey, there's a consequence to you out here stealing these cars. But, the, but we continue to, 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 to overlook these things, and crime continues to, to explode in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. And we, want, and we always want to throw up our hands at it. But, no, we have to put these individuals in facilities in jail. Got it. Thanks for the call, Vince. And again, maybe we're talking about a matter of degree, because even if you try somebody as an adult, if they're a juvenile, they still, let's say you get a four-year sentence. You, you still, if you're a juvenile, you still spend the first time of that in, in one of the state secure facilities for juveniles, and then you graduate into the other thing. But you know, regardless of how we look at it, there's got to be this accountability. And I see, I think you have to treat this as a big deal from the beginning. Part of the problem with this is just by turning the other cheek and hoping that this is going to go away, one of the things we're seeing is it's not working. I mean, I go back to the, the failed policy that Tom Barrett devised and kind of directed the former Milwaukee police chief, Ed Flynn, to adopt, where, where he said we, we weren't going to chase people. Remember about five, six years ago, that was the policy. Uh, unless you have information that the person involved is in actively committing or has committed a felony, let them go. And, and I understand where that came from. It came from this idea of, well, gee, we don't want to endanger people on the streets. But the word got out. And the word was, hey, you can do pretty much anything you want, and the cops aren't going to be able to chase you. So what happened? You had rolling, you know, the drug dealers started selling dope out of their vans. And then when the police would try to pull them over, they'd take off, and the police wouldn't be able to follow them. You'd have car thefts, and the car thieves would take off, and the police wouldn't be able to follow them. You had reckless driving. You had just carnage on the streets. The problem got so bad that finally we realized that that was, what's my word? It was a stupid policy. And they, they changed it. And so now the word is, hey, if you try to run to the police, we're, they're, they're going to, within certain rules, they're going to track you down and they're going to try to catch you. Well, to me, this is the same thing. We have taken a position of coddling criminals when it comes to these car thieves for, for years. And we've been seeing huge spikes in the number. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. And again, I, I understand the police put out these instructions, don't leave your car running. Well, that, that, right, that, that makes sense. But still, what does it say about a community that you can't leave your car running for like two minutes without somebody coming up and stealing it? Again, if these numbers are right, it, it's almost staggering. 20 or 25 cars a day being stolen in the city of Milwaukee. 
Kentucky? I mean, what do we say? And again, if we want to talk about regressive, that is a policy that hurts low-income people the most, that this is it. Because, you know, you you have your car stolen, and it's the only car you have. Um, all right, good luck trying to get to work the next day. Let's talk to Ron in Sheboygan. Ron, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, thanks for having me on. I have three concerns, and I'll keep it very brief. The first concern is 20 years ago, stealing a car was called Grand Theft Auto. It's no mm-hmm. different than if you walked into a jewelry store or a bank and took $35,000 equivalent to the value of the car. But now, there is no punishment. There is no recourse. This, this is upsetting. Who, who reclassified car theft as high, carjacking instead of Grand Theft Auto? Yeah. Right. Well, right. Yeah. You steal. You're, okay. you're, you're, you've got a great point. You steal. Right. You steal. A, you steal a twenty thousand dollar automobile, and it's like, oh, it's no big deal. You know, it's, how did we get right. to this point? Right. My second concern is, if you or I, as older adults, stole the car, I don't think we'd get off with it. I think that we'd be put in jail or fined or or whatever. Don't you agree? You, I would hope. <laughs> I, I would okay. hope, but, but then, maybe the idea is our, right. our minds our, our minds are more developed, so we understand that it's wrong to take a crowbar, kick out a back window, and then hotwire a car. You can't expect a 16-year-old to know that. Where does this come from? I mean, I knew at 16 years right. old that it was wrong to steal a car. Right, and my third concern is the effect this is going to have on Milwaukee businesses. I live in Sheboygan. My neighbors, relatives, coworkers, friends, they're getting hesitant to go down to Milwaukee anymore. They want to mm-hmm. shop in Sheboygan County because they're afraid if they go to Mayfair or somewhere and they have a new car, you have to keep an eye on it. That shouldn't be. Well, no, thank, thanks for the call. Well, you're, you're right. See, this is, this is one of these things that affects the quality of life on so many different ways. It affects the quality of life for, for residents. The, the idea that, hey, I, I park my car out on the street, I pay taxes, I pay my parking fees, I need that car to get to work, and I'm supposed to be at work at 7.30 in the morning, I come out at 7 o'clock, my car is gone. Okay, so it affects those people, but you're right too, Ron, it affects the whole idea of, uh, of of livability of a city. You know, if you're trying to inspire somebody from the suburbs to come on in and they're looking at the say in the fact, hey, I've, I've got kind of a decent late model car. I am afraid if I put it on the street and go into the store or I park in this parking lot, it, it's going to be gone and it's going to be stolen by some 16-year-old and it's going to be stolen by some 16-year-old that's probably stolen another four or five and nobody cares about it. Well, you're exactly right. Why are you going to go into Milwaukee and take that risk? All right, let me follow behind here with my uh, text. Jeff, these juveniles need to be sent to a facility where they are not released to their parents. Put them in a work release program, something like that. Um, Jeff, if the juvenile mind isn't developed enough, how developed is it to be able to hotwire a car? Jeff, oh my goodness, where are the parents? My children at the age of five knew right from wrong I still put the blame on the parents. Maybe we should find them or lock them up for a while. Maybe the parents will do the parenting. Well, good luck with that. Jeff, maybe you should charge the parents of these teens. Jeff, the system is not built to handle that many intakes. Okay, so it's like, all right, we, we can't deal with it. The problem is so out of control that we now just have to throw up our hands and say, all right, where, where is this going? Jeff, if someone is stealing my car, I would shoot. Now, you know, the Journal Sentinel story that got me started on this does make a reference, and, and that's, again, one of the other concerns that are out there is that um, 
we, we live in this concealed carry world nowadays, and you, you do wonder what's going to happen if some of these, these punks that are out there stealing cars, and this is more in the carjacking area, I would say, but they decide to pick the wrong victim and somebody who decides that, you know, they are going to resist. Then, you know, you can just see all sorts of bad things happening, which is why you need to get a handle on the problem in the first place. Um, Jeff, I'm 68 years old. In my day, um, they, they understood what was right and wrong. Jeff, until we have stricter penalties for these individuals, we will only see record numbers of thieves, car thefts, on a yearly basis. Youth facilities need to be utilized. That is the only answer that thugs understand. Jeff, there seems to be a faction of society that doesn't take criminal behavior seriously. Um, I believe they are part of a subgroup that doesn't want to play by the rules that law-abiding citizens follow. They support each other um, by lashing out. Well, um... Okay, Jeff, I think you're misunderstanding the point. They do understand the consequences of their actions. That's why they do it. The consequences for a juvenile car thief is absolutely nothing. Um, yeah, Jeff, I don't believe the statement of the adolescent brain not understanding behavior and consequences. Um, I remember two students misbehaving in my phys ed class. The um, phys ed teacher took them aside behind closed doors and taught them directly what the consequences of those things are. Yeah, I mean, look, here, here's the bottom line of this. These numbers are staggering. And, and I understand you've got violence that is out of control in the city of Milwaukee with a record number of homicides last year. You've got violent crime out of control. And you've got the nonviolent crime, the stealing the cars. But these are all quality of life things. And I guess it is troubling to me that whether it's that we don't want to offend certain segments of the community or we don't want to have too many consequences or whatever, that we decide to put the interests of the criminals over the interest of the victims. And that's got to stop. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Jeff, from 1995 to 1997, my grandmother lived on the northwest side of Milwaukee in a senior living community. She had her car stolen three times, and my father had his car stolen once at her apartment. Every time it happened, we called the police and asked if they could put an officer to patrol the area. Way back then, they said they didn't have the resources to do that. I can only imagine how far down the list car thefts are in the city of Milwaukee with all the other things going on in this day and time. Sounds like a good reason to increase police presence in the city and not decrease it. Um, yeah, you you would think that that would be the concern that maybe this isn't the time necessarily to drop 100 or 150 sworn police officers. Um, Jeff, the bleeding heart stance on this is preposterous. I wonder how benevolent these public officials will feel when it's their cars that get stolen. Without stiff punishment, there's no disincentive to law-breaking and perhaps moving on to violent crimes. Wake up. You see, that's, that, that's the other thing. And it, when, 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 these, when these cars get stolen, and again, sometimes it's just, hey, there's this car here, let's take it for a joyride. But a lot of times, the car is stolen for some other purpose. Here, we're going to steal the car and we're going to use it, I don't know, because we're going to you know, rob somebody or, or whatever. All right, I keep going back to when they tried to carjack Chris Abley, the former county executive, you know, about a month and a half ago. Still nobody in custody for that. My guess is, dollars to donuts, the car that the perpetrators were driving was stolen. 
I, that, that's just my guess. Don't know for sure. But you got the one stolen car. Here, let's go out and steal another. We're in the stolen car. It's going to be tougher to track it and trace it to us. Now we'll jump out of the car with a gun and we'll try to out of the stolen car and we'll try to steal another one. And, and also that this whole concept of joyriding. I, I would like to say to some of the officials in Milwaukee, have you driven on the streets of Milwaukee? I mean, seriously, you, you talk about joyriding. The last thing you need in the city of Milwaukee is 16-year-old kids driving stolen cars, more 16-year-old kids driving stolen cars, driving 100 miles an hour and blowing through stop signs on Capitol Drive or Hampton Avenue or North Avenue or wherever. It, it is just it is a menace. You take your life into your own hands when you go on city streets now. Every time you come up to an intersection, it's about 50-50 pick them, whether you know, the cars are going to stop or whether they're going to go. And you think these kids that are driving these cars in taking on quote-unquote joy rides, whatever the heck that means nowadays, you think that they're... Um, you think that they're in a situation where they're, they're they're going to stop or they're going to be driving safely? All right. And then I do have a handful of, of and just a handful of texts, but I, this is one's representative. It's the people who can't get over their Trump derangement syndrome. Jeff, this is all because they're learning from the GOP that laws have no consequences. And to people who are sitting there thinking that, the best advice I would be is, look, I, I understand that you've got Trump derangement syndrome, but Donald Trump isn't the reason 16-year-olds are boosting cars in the city of Milwaukee. And the sooner you get over your Trump derangement syndrome, the happier your life will be. President Trump is out of office. He's not coming back. And if you want it for the next four years, try to blame Trump for all the bad things that go on in the world. Okay, fine, but... To me, it's not shaping up to be a very happy life if that's your approach. To me, when you catch the car thieves, you punish them, you lock them up. If nothing else, it stops them from stealing more cars. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Let's be cheering. We're 29. We're 29. What are we 29th in? Well, the new numbers show that as far as number of doses of vaccines administered, we're up to number 29 in the nation out of the 50 states. Now, that might not sound too good. But when you consider that we were 45th a week ago, it does show that we're improving, I would assume, or other states are doing worse. To me, it's just completely unacceptable that having had the better part of a year, knowing that there was going to be a vaccine and to plan how to get the rollout, it's just unacceptable that in the state of Wisconsin we're 45 or we're 29. We should have done better. But but the bottom line is, apparently we are improving a, a little bit. But the ongoing debate, and we've talked about this on this program, is who gets the vaccine next? And interestingly, the state has kind of, because, because we don't have enough vaccine to get the people who are already like in the first tier to be vaccinated, because we don't have enough vaccine to, to distribute to them, it doesn't make any sense to complete, to complete, 
to continue going ahead and creating tiers and classes when we, we don't have enough to take care of the people that, that already you know, need it. it. It's sort of like if you're flying Southwest Airlines and you're getting ready to board, you know, and they board by, you know, if you're in A position or a B position or C position, it's kind of like saying, well, there's no sense in worrying about getting the C people standing up if we've got all the A people that are still, they're not on the plane. So, I mean, continuing to say, okay, this is who's going to get the vaccines next. At this point, it's kind of all academic but it is an ongoing battle trying to pick and choose the winners and losers i I think all of us at least most of us would agree that you know that the first batch which is the frontline health workers and the people that are in nursing homes um that, that that makes sense and then people over the age of 70 now i have argued and some of you disagree that's okay i've argued that what makes the most sense is rather than trying to pick and choose professions and try to decide who is more essential, does it make more sense to take the 33-year-old IT guy that works at home for a hospital and give him a vaccine? Does it make more sense to do that? Or does it make more sense to give the 35-year-old teacher the vaccine? Or does it make more sense to give the 62-year-old person who's working as a checkout clerk in a grocery store or at a Walgreens? Whether than trying to decide who deserves to go to the front of the line and who is a more essential worker, I have been arguing that it makes sense just, just to go by age. Because if you look at our outcomes... What we've been always trying to do is to to flatten the curve, right? The idea is to stop the hospital system from becoming overwhelmed. And what what is the one thing that leads to hospitalization statistically? Well, well, it's age. And that's not saying that a 28-year-old can't get COVID and die or a 33-year-old can't get COVID and have to be hospitalized. But we know statistically your chances of being hospitalized or dying with COVID, that the biggest single factor is age and then then underlying health risks as well. Then you combine age and underlying health risks, and you, you've got the, you know, the exacta of chances. And so that's why I have argued that rather than trying to say, okay, is the 32-year-old IT guy who works in the hospital, is he more worthy of going to the head of the line in front of the 35-year-old teacher or the 62-year-old guy that's working at Target? All right, it just would make more sense to base it on age. Okay, we're going to go, we're going to deal with 60-year-old people next, then we're going to deal with 50-year-old people, then we're going to deal with 40-year-old people. Some states are doing that. Wisconsin is not one that's doing it. One of the things, though, that they are considering, and I'm looking at the story in USA Today, is instead of going by age, or in addition to going by age, one of the things that they would do is try to prioritize pre-existing health conditions. And one of the arguments, well, here's the, let me read you the first paragraph of the story. As more Americans anxiously wait their turn to get the COVID-19 vaccine, people are discovering that smokers are one of the priority groups for vaccination. Some don't agree with the guidance and have expressed frustrations on social media, but health experts say the rationale is clear. I could see why people would feel as if it's unfair, but people who are smokers are, in general, at higher risk for getting sicker when they develop COVID-19. A study published January 25th in the Journal of American Medicine found that people who smoke or have smoked in the past are more likely to be hospitalized or die from COVID-19 than people who haven't smoked. 
All right, our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, let, let's, let us tee this up. I've argued, and the rationale that I've used is that we should go by age because, again, people who are 65 are more likely, if they get COVID, to have a bad result than people who are, are 35. And to me, rather than picking winners and losers and what occupation is more essential, that that's follow the science, that's the way to go. Well, obviously, if you are a smoker, you are more susceptible to having bad things happen to you, whether it's an increased likelihood that you're going to get lung cancer, whether it's an increased likelihood that you're going to have all sorts of other health conditions, because smoking, while legal, is bad for you. So do you think if somebody is a smoker, you're smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, you're 35 years old, should you go to the head of the line? Should you get your vaccine ahead of Say that 64-year-old non-smoker, 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, is this a smoker's break? My answer, I, I don't think we should be, I understand the rationale, and you can call me inconsistent for arguing that we should do this by age, but I will tell you something, if, if I had, I don't know, a, a 68-year-old parent you know, who was waiting in line to get the vaccine, and I found that some 35-year-old guy or gal who was a -a pack-a-day smoker was going to the head of the line simply by virtue of the decision they made to smoke cigarettes, I'd have a lot of issue with that. What about you? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. One of the things that's being considered is allowing cigarette smokers to go to the head of the line for vaccinations. And by the way, I got some sort of snippy text. Well, my dad's seventy-two and he has lung cancer. You're saying he shouldn't get it? Well, no. If, if you're seventy-two years old, you're, you're already in that line. Why somebody would think that a thirty-five-year-old smoker, simply by virtue of the fact that they are a smoker, should entitle them to go to the head of the line ahead of, say, a I don't know, 55-year-old teacher or a 55-year-old, I don't know, other sort of essential worker merely by virtue of the fact that they are a smoker. To me, I think that's crazy. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Mike in Merton. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. I'm going to be 84 years old, the 26th of this month. And I've been in line in four different places, and every time I call, they say, we will call you, we will call you. Now I have to wait in line for a smoker. Then do I have to wait in line for an alcoholic and a drug addict? Because they have... Yes. I, I mean, that, isn't that the argument? Wouldn't the argument be, okay, if you have somebody who is a heroin addict, and because they're a heroin addict, they're much more susceptible to all these bad things happening, so that 28-year-old heroin addict should go to the head of the line ahead of you. I, I, where do we come up with these ideas? Now, I, I mean, I guess I, I understand it. Yes, they're, they're more likely, if they get it, to get sick. But at some point in time, don't we have to pick and choose, and don't we have to have some common-sense way of doing it? Apparently not. 
Apparently I mean, not. I, I, I listen yeah. to what's going on, and I think to myself, my goodness, uh, uh, they got it as screwed up as, as possible. There, there's nothing well, else they can do that would be right. <laughs> well, thanks so, for the call, Mike. Well, see that, that I appreciate. See, that's why I argue, and I, I understand people disagree with me. I argue that the thing that makes the most sense, if we're all about following the science, and that's that's what I've been hearing, follow science, try to reduce the curve. Is is after you've taken care of the people that are in the nursing homes, after you've taken care of the frontline health workers, then what it makes the most sense to do is age. Okay, seventy and above. Right. Once we get that done, 65 and above, then 60 and above, then 50 and above for the reasons that I stated, because otherwise you, you pick winners and, and losers. And I, I don't know. Are you in a position to say that the 35 year old smoker should go ahead of, like I say, the 55 year old? We'll take the example of 55 year old teacher who's never smoked a, a day in their life or other sort of essential workers merely because they, they've made the decision that they are going to, to smoke cigarettes. Now, I would say in these cases, you just the simplest way to do it is just do it by by age and say okay you know you're 66 years old you're 63 years old you're a regular smoker yeah you're you're in with the group once they open it up to people over 60 you're there but we're not going to make special exceptions we're not going to let you cut in the line simply because you're a cigarette smoker sam in waukesha sam you're in wtmj hi thanks for taking my call jeff sure. i am totally with you on taking it by age and going down. I do not believe the smoker should get any priority. That was their poor choice to smoke, be it at present or past or whatever. I think it should be age. Um, I go along with the essential workers getting it and what have you, but I think about so many people that are 70, 75, 80. They are still independent, like the gentleman that just talked to you, and they're not in a facility, so they are still waiting to get that COVID vaccine. Yeah, and when are they exactly. going to get it? it, it exactly. And again, it's, look, and I understand we, we don't have enough stuff to go around. And, and that's the frustrating thing. And so you have to have some way of distributing things. And I'm getting a couple of texts saying, are you saying the smokers shouldn't get the vaccine? No, I, I'm not saying that. But no. the, the question is, how do you prioritize these things? And, and, and yeah, I think the simplest way to do it is, Make sure the oldest people have it first and then kind of move down. And, and if you want to create a special category for first responders and police officers and, and health, frontline health people, I understand it. Um, the 32-year-old guy that works in IT for the hospital and is working at home, no, I wouldn't put him at the front of the line. I'd have him with the rest of the 30-year-olds. I am totally, completely with you on that feeling. Yes, start yeah. by age and go down. It's just, it would seem to me that it would be more efficient and more expedient to do it that way than to be jumping all over the place with exceptions. Right. Now, thanks for calling, Sam. And, 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 it, and it's easier... And it's it's easier to prioritize stuff. You know, I was talking about this in a different context the other day, and uh, there there's some people who feel very strongly that teachers should should go to the teachers should be getting it before um, before police officers. And then you say, okay, we're going to let teachers get it, but you know, is, is the classroom teacher who's been teaching remotely, who's 28 years old, and who, who if they get COVID, statistically, the, the chances of a bad outcome are not great. 
And, and, and I'm not saying, again, the 28-year-old can't get sick. Of course they can. But statistically, if you're 28 years old, you're going to get it, you're going to have certain symptoms, and you're going to recover. That's where the majority, that's where the numbers are. So are we saying that the 28-year-old teacher should, because he or she is a teacher, should they go to the head of the line ahead of, let, let's say, the again, the, the 61-year-old truck driver who, who's been out, who's been working through this entire thing, who's you know in and out of, of different stores, who's also an essential worker. That's the problem when you start trying to pick and choose based on certain um, based on, on certain different occupations and professions. And now if you're going to start to factor in, okay, let's look at people who have a higher health risk because of, uh, again, their, their choice to smoke. I mean, and, and where do you draw the line? Okay, you know, type 2 diabetes is an epidemic in this country, all right? And if you look at the numbers, you know, again, people with type 2 diabetes, they they are more likely to have a bad outcome, especially when, confined, when combined with age, than somebody who doesn't have diabetes. Okay, so what do we say now? Do we say that the 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 guy that's um, you know overweight who has type two diabetes at the age of forty five that we're going to put that person ahead of the fifty nine year old school teacher? I mean, how do you pick these winners and, and losers? Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. As an ex-smoker, I think it is wrong to push smokers ahead in line because when a person decides to smoke, he or she is basically taking like a package deal to put themselves at risk for a variety of issues. And I think by default, that would include COVID-19. And what's a person who's like 68 years old, they don't choose to be 68 years old. They're just 68, and so I think that they should be next. Yeah, I mean, it, and thanks for the call, Jeff. And, and, and at least the way I'm outlining it, it, it it's easily understandable. It's, it's fair to the extent that, okay, that this is the objective reason we're doing this, and we're doing it because we're following the science. Here's a text, Jeff. I'm a 43-year-old smoker. I'm appalled at the thought that I would be able to get my shot before my mother, who's 75 years old. I don't understand the logic where the logic comes from, there should be no question age is what we should define this. The exception to me would be if you're in a special care facility and you're younger, um, but but otherwise I think it's insane to suggest anything other than age as the um, as the underlying thing. Jeff, um, essential workers have been working the whole time. Um, you know, are teachers really essential? Well, again, that, that's the whole debate. What, who's essential, who's not? You do it my way, you don't have this argument. But again, taking, all right, you're, you're a cigarette smoker one of my cynical listeners is saying Jeff okay here's the deal um, if if you can get to the head of the line by saying you're a smoker how many people are going to suddenly say that they're smokers <laughs> which is which is true when you look at the tourism vaccines the vaccination that's going on where you have the people who are you know driving from Montana to Washington State or flying down to Florida because they think that they can get in line to get it first yeah can you imagine how many um, smokers <laughs> that are going to um, be there, yeah, that, yeah. All of a sudden, you know, here I'm. I'm the smoker, Jeff. I'm 76 years old and in good health. It seems to me I'm being penalized for good health and healthy living habits. Well, to to an extent, yeah. Now again, right now, the, the guidelines are above 70. You're you're in the first wave. That makes sense to me. 
and, and that's, I think, pretty consistent. As we start to roll it out, it's going to be a tougher decision. But going to the head of the line because you're a, a 35-year-old smoker, I, I'm sorry, makes no sense. Back with more in just a minute. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Well, how many second basemen can the Brewers have? Now, the the reports are that the Brewers, who have done almost nothing this offseason, and it's, I mean, look, I understand that the the state of the finances in Major League Baseball is completely up in the air, and you don't know how many games they're going to play, and you don't know whether they're going to have fans in the stands, and, and that does dramatically affect finances, particularly for a team like the Milwaukee Brewers that depend on on gate revenue to to you know make it and so they haven't exactly been wading into the free agent market in in a big way but the reports are that they have uh, signed a deal with free agent second baseman Colton Wong who um, you know played for the St Louis Cardinals two year eighteen million dollar contract with a third year option a lot of people think Wong is is the best. One of the best, if not the best, defensive second baseman in in the game. Um, doesn't hit with a lot of power, but you know he still, you know, he hits for average to hit two sixty five. Um, you know, last year, but so he, you know, he's a good solid player, I guess. And I just remember him just wearing out the Brewers. Maybe, maybe it's it's just you know I, I'm not remembering things clearly. But I I always thought whenever I was watching the games and he came up, it seemed to me he used to wear out the Brewers as the Cardinals. So I don't think it's a bad signing necessarily. Except, all right, what what do you do with Keston Hira, who has been the Brewers' primary starting? second baseman for the last couple years. I mean, he's the guy that, um, you know, as a rookie in 2019, hit 303, you know, great hitter, really, but was not a good defensive second baseman, really regressed last year. A lot of players did. He, he, He only hit 212, you know, last year. So, but but second base is his position, and he struggled defensively at second base. So the question becomes: If Hera is your your future, and you need him hitting, okay, you bring Colton Wong in. You're not bringing Wong in to play a position other than second base. You wouldn't think because again, he's one of the best in the league, one of the best in Major League Baseball. So that means you have to find a place for Hera to play. Do, do you move him to third base? Because right now, I don't know that there's anybody on the Brewers team that can play third base. So you move him to third base. But, my gosh, if you were a defensive liability at second base, um, third base, a lot, lot harder. Those balls are coming at you a lot quicker. Now, you don't have to move as far, but those balls are coming at you a lot quicker. Um, I don't know what the Brewers are thinking with this particular move. I mean, it, it's a positive addition. There's no question about it. Good player, and I hope it comes true. I hope this report is accurate. You just wonder... Ultimately, what their plan is, I mean, how many, how many second basemen can, can they have? And, and is it an upgrade? Well, yeah, it, it probably, he is probably an upgrade, but still, Hera is one of the, your players of the future, and it seems to me you gotta figure out you know, some place for him to play. Now, a couple texts say, Hera will be the designated hitter. Well, okay, I mean, last I checked, we don't, we're not going to have a designated hitter in the National League. Uh, um, somebody else is saying, sorry, I think Wong is awful. Um, somebody else says, oh, I think it's a great signing. So, I mean, that's one of the fun things about baseball. Okay, do you know who Morgan Wallen is? I, I have to confess, and this this might show how out of touch I am with the last year or two of country music. Because I, when, when I first saw this story, I saw the name Morgan Wallen. I didn't even know if Morgan Wallen was a guy or a gal. I admit. But, but now I, I know. Morgan 
Wallen is 27 years old, and he's one of the hot singers on the country music charts. Wallen now finds himself the target of the cancel culture, and he really has nobody but himself to blame. Wallen was a guy who last fall, he was scheduled to be on Saturday Night Live, and then people took pictures of him. He was either performing or he was out at a club or something, and he was hanging out with his fans, and he was partying, and he didn't have a mask on, and it was this huge controversy, and Saturday Night Live canceled his appearance and all that. So he's a guy who likes to go out and likes to party and probably plays fast and loose with the COVID rules. Well, okay, Morgan is now in trouble, and he's being accused of being a racist, and you know he's got the cancel culture coming down on him full time. Here, here's what happens. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and his neighbors know where he lives. <laughs> and my, my guess is, like I say, the guy is a party guy. So here's the deal. Last weekend, he's out with a, a bunch of his buddies. Um, and he, he says these are old friends. And my understanding is these old friends are are people of mixed races. You've got you've got at least one black guy. You've got white guys, and, and they're all out and they're drinking and they're partying. They come back. Somebody they come back to his place, and they they drop him off. And it's kind of late at night, and they're making a lot of noise. Well, one of the neighbors. Um, hears them making a lot of noise and gets up and starts filming with the cell phone because this is, of course, 2021, and whenever anybody does anything, somebody else has to film it. And so they're they're filming this guy who appears to me to be intoxicated, you know, after a night of partying with, with part of his, you know, hangout gang, and they're all, they're, they're in the driveway, and they're kind of shouting, and, and they're yelling back and forth, etc. and you've got some neighbor who's filming this. Well, in the course of... And this is a 37-second video that I've watched, and I, maybe there's more to it than that. But he's 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 saying good night to some of his guys, and one of the things that he shouts is apparently in reference to one of his friends who is black, and he says to somebody else, "Hey, take care of this blankety blank," and then he uses the N word, <laughs> you know, and, and and it's it's clearly. He's using it, believe it or not, as, as a term of affection. At least that's what it seems to me to be. But he says, you know, take care of, of this and, you know, make sure he gets home or, or whatever. And, you know, then, then they all wave goodnight. So he, he wasn't using it in the terms of, like, as a derogatory term. At least by that, I mean, I, I, look, I think that word is offensive. I don't think anybody should use it. I don't think black people should use it. I don't think white people should use it. I think the world would be a better place if we just simply said, we're not going to put this in rap music, we're not going to put this in society, and we're not going to let comedians use it, and we're not going to have film producers put that word in movies every third time, because I, I think it is harmful and demeaning. If you watch the videotape, he's not doing it, it doesn't seem to me in, in a way, it's just kind of like if he were black and he were saying it to somebody else, that, that's how he's throwing around the term. But nevertheless, he uses that term, it's caught on this video, and now there is a huge controversy on the story I'm looking at out of the Chicago Tribune. Country radio quickly removes Morgan Wallen from playlists after racial slur. The hottest music star in 2020, Morgan 2021, has suddenly gone very cold. His music was yanked 
ranked from Cumulus Media, the second biggest radio chain in the nation, as of midnight after a storm broke out on his being captured on video using a racial slur. Cumulus, which is especially powerful in the country radio sphere, sent out a directive to program directors of all of its 400-plus stations with the header Morgan Wallen, Extremely important. The message read, Team, unfortunately, country music star Morgan Wallen was captured on video Sunday evening using a racial slur. Effective immediately, we request that all of his music be removed from our playlists without exception. More to follow. And they expect that, that other other stations will do the same thing. He, in an effort for damage control, has come out and he's put out a statement um, apologizing for this, saying, look, I'm, I'm sorry I, I did this. I, I'm embarrassed and sorry. I used an unacceptable and inappropriate racial slur that I wish I could take back. There are no excuses for this type of language ever. I sincerely want to apologize for using the word. I promise to do better. And, and I think, um, you know, that's, that's appropriate. The, the apology, and I think if you again, th- this video's out there. I, I didn't send out a tweet. I didn't link to it because it, it's it's got the offensive word in it. And as I've argued, I, I just don't think anybody should use the word. And I guess the, the point is that there, there's no sort of context that makes this justifiable. But regardless, you know, th- this is the cancel culture, and Morgan Wallen has nobody but himself to, to blame for this. And you know, my guess is there'll be a, a bit of an uproar, and then you know, th- this too will pass. But I, I do think that in 2021, maybe one of the things we need to do is to try to work for a degree of, of consistency. And, and maybe that consistency is saying this word is inex- unacceptable. And regardless of the context or regardless whether this word was used in a playful sort of way addressing one of his friends or whether it was used with ill intent, you know, directed at somebody with hostility, or regardless of if, if it was used by a white person or a black person or a brown person, m- maybe we should get to this point where we say, you know, there are just some words that we, we got to get out of society, and it doesn't matter who says them and, and the way they say them. And, and yeah, I have no sympathy for Morgan Wallen. He, he shouldn't have done this. And, and of course, you, you should also understand that you, you've got the neighbors that are going to be out there, and they're going to be filming this, and it's all going to become Again, it's going to become an issue. But if it's an issue for him, maybe it should be an issue for other people who use that word as well, whether it's in rap music or in movies, period. Maybe the the world would just be a better place if we could all agree that regardless of the context, we shouldn't be using that regardless of who you are. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This is one of those stories that if I'm if I'm President Joe Biden, when I hear about this, I'm just putting my head down and saying, huh, I, I, I wonder why they thought this would be a good idea. Now, now, Joe Biden has promised one of the most ethical administrations in, in history, and, and I, I wish him well in doing that seriously. And I I I've said before that, you know, with the son, his son, Hunter Biden, there, there's no question in my mind that that Hunter Biden, back in the day, was using 
his name to try to, you know, secure, you know, deals. And there, there's no question about it. He traded on his name. Whether that means that, you know, Joe Biden had any complicity, that, that's for, you know, other people to determine. But there's no question that Hunter Biden was using his name and his father to try to enrich himself. So, and, and that's going to be something that I think is going to come out more in investigations. And again, those investigations will go wherever they go. But so here's the deal. Joe Biden has several siblings. His youngest sibling, um, who's 67 years old, is, is a guy named Frank Biden. Now, Frank is not a lawyer, but Frank, um, for the last couple of years, has worked for a law firm in Florida called the Berman Law Group. The Berman Law Group is a, um, they do primarily what we would call plaintiff's work, you know, so the, the idea if you're, you know, interested in, in suing somebody because you, you think you, you had a personal injury case or something like that, um, you, you, you'd go with the Berman Group. That, that's it. And, and Frank Biden, who's not a lawyer, works for the Berman Law Group. Now, you might say, okay, well, I don't get it. Why would, why does a law firm have somebody who's not a lawyer who works for him? Well, that's, that, that is not necessarily uncommon. I mean, some of these groups do lobbying for their clients. Some of these groups have um, non-lawyers on the staff to help attract clients, things like that. Some law firms will have non-lawyers that work because they have an area of expertise that, for example, if a client comes to them, that even though they can't go into court and represent the client, they can help plot the strategy or things like that. So it's, it's not necessarily that unusual. All right, so here's the controversy if you haven't heard about it. The first weekend after Joe Biden is elected, the law firm decides that they are going to run an ad. Um, and so they're going to take out the, this giant ad touting the fact that Joe Biden's brother works for the Berman Law Group. And it's gotten all sorts of attention to this because, you know, they're doing this ad saying, oh, by the way, you know, Joe Biden has now been elected the president and, you know, he's advancing these various policies. And this is um, the same thing that his brother, who, you know, works for our law firm, you know, decides that, you know, he's in favor of this stuff as well. So if you look at it, it's a, a not too thinly veiled effort to say, hey, the president's brother is working for our law firm, wink, wink, nod, nod. So, you know, maybe if you're interested in these particular type of things, you know, come to us. Now, it doesn't explicitly say, you know, come to us, hire us, and the president's brother is going to be able to get influence. But it's one of these things where if I'm Joe Biden, the last darn thing I want in the world, especially, you know, given all the controversies involving Donald Trump and the ongoing stuff involving, you know, Hunter Biden, the last thing I want in the world is my younger brother's law firm taking out ads touting the fact that, gee, it's my younger brother. When you see the name Biden, you know, um, you just know that, that that's my younger brother who's working there. And again, they haven't come out yet with their ethics policy um, regarding Biden family members. But the, the truth is, fair or unfair, Joe Biden's business dealings, the business dealings by some of his relatives have, you know, have caused issues. And it's issues that he's had to deal with. And now you're in office like a week and a half and you've got the younger brother's law firm 
in the best of cases, moving swiftly to capitalize on, uh, again, the connection that, you know, our guy's brother is now the president of the United States. You know, the newspaper ad that they ran on Inauguration Day, they boasted about a class action lawsuit they had filed against sugarcane growers, stressing that the case came against the backdrop of incoming President Joseph Biden's commitment to environmental and social justice, a value shared by his brother and Berman Law Group senior advisor Frank Biden. Wink, wink, nod, nod. If you have any class action cases that you want to file that might be, I don't know, viewed favorably by the current government administration, well, all right, we, we've got the president's brother on our staff. And again, I'm, I'm not saying, I, I, as a matter of fact, I am sure that Joe Biden did not know that this was going to happen because apparently they, they've stopped this once the Washington Post and other places started calling and making the inquiries. So to me, this isn't an ethics thing. Oh, look, look, look what Biden's doing. But this is just showing that you have, you have family members or people affiliated with the family members who are willing to capitalize on, on the names of perhaps the more famous relatives. And especially given what's been going on with Hunter Biden, if, if I were Joe Biden, I think I would pick up the phone, I would call my brother, and I would say, um, Frank, you know, here, here's the bottom line. We can't be having this stuff go on. <laughs> and I, I wish you all the success, and I'm glad you're doing well. And I hope you bring in a whole bunch of clients for that new law firm. But the bottom line is, for the love of you-know-what, n- no more written ads. For whatever you do, don't try to trade on my name because that created all sorts of controversy before. And the last thing I want to do is spend the first year of my administration dealing with ethics complaints involving whether it's Hunter or whether it's you or whether it's anybody else that's out there. Just live and die, succeed or fail on your own merit. So that's the latest story. And again, I don't attribute ill will to uh, Joe Biden. I'm probably, it's probably one of these things where he's sitting there thinking, man, I tell you, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your relatives. All right. We've got a lot of stuff coming up in the next hour of the program, including will Summerfest 2021 occur? Are some of these people's beefs about snow removal legitimate? And a lot more. Stick around. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. So glad to have you with us. All right, during the 12 o'clock hour of the program yesterday, we had an opportunity to talk with uh, Summerfest CEO Don Smiley. Summerfest has announced that Summerfest, which was originally supposed to be held over three weekends beginning in late June, had decided that that just was not a realistic timetable given where we are in the vaccination process and that as a result what they were going to do is they were going to push Summerfest back to three weekends starting September 2nd. So essentially they're, they're, they're buying about 75 extra days. And, you know, when I had a chance to talk to Don Smiley, there were a number of questions that I was posing to him, including, all right, is a concern that you have maybe like being able to book the bands? Because right now there's a lot of bands that aren't touring already. You know, everybody wants to get back on the road as soon as possible. But, you know, you've had the music industry, which has been largely shut down for the last 
year. And the question becomes, all right, are the bands going to be out on the road? In addition, the concern for an event like Summerfest becomes, how do you do this? And Summerfest needs a certain volume. For example, to pay the bands that are going to be performing at the amphitheater, right? That there's, there's a certain amount of money that they have to shell out. And that is based on their calculation that, hey, we can, we can sell out the XYZ show. And, and we can get 22,000 people, or however many the venue holds. You know, we, we can get 22,000 people in here, and we know what our ticket revenue is going to be. And that's why we can bring in the band, this particular band, because we know that we'll have, we're able to anticipate that we're going to have this amount of money coming in, because we know we're going to get this many people, and so then we can pay them this. Well, the problem, and Don alluded to this a little bit yesterday, was if, if you're running a festival at like half capacity, well, that, 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 that the economics don't work because you've got certain expenses that are based on the number of tickets that you're going to sell. Uh, again, let's just stick with like a main stage event. You, you can't, if, if in order to make it work, if the XYZ band wants a million dollars that night, well, you have to be able to say, gee, we're going to be able to sell a million three worth of tickets or, or whatever. Well, if all of a sudden your capacity is limited to half, and you got to say, oh, we're only going to get $500,000 in, and the band still wants a million dollars to come out. Well, the math doesn't work. So you really have to be in a situation where, in order to pull off, I think, some of these large festivals, what you need to do in order to get the bands back out on the road and all these things, you need to be operate, you need to operate at somewhere near a normal level. You know, the, the idea of, okay, maybe we're going to bring 25% of the, we're going to open up the Pfizer Forum at the end of February, and, and we'll have 25% of the crowds. Well, we're playing the games anyway. So, okay, stuff like that, maybe it makes sense with the idea that, okay, we start with 25%, and then we're up to 50%, but we're playing the games anyways. For these festivals, it, it's a different dynamic. You need to have a, a certain number of people, which means you have to be, if you're going to go ahead, you have to be relatively confident that we're we're going to be through the worst of this pandemic and you're not going to be operating with significant capacity limitations because otherwise like i say it just the the economics of this just don't work the bands aren't going to come out if there's not a certain amount of money that's involved in this and places like Summerfest aren't going to be able to book bands unless they know that they're going to be able to run something pretty close to normal, whatever that normal might be. So you have Summerfest moving back to September to buy themselves some more time. You have Pride Fest, which is normally the first event at the lakefront. They've they've already said, okay, we're not doing it in, in June. What we're going to do is we're going to hope to set up a date in September. The other ethnic festivals still have not been heard from as of yet. State Fair, which as far as attendance goes, State Fair is the largest um, attendance drawing um event in in the state i mean it brought in i think what over a million people pretty consistently from you know 2013 to 2019 that's scheduled for august 5th to the 15th and the fair organizers are hoping they're going to be able to pull it off our number 855-616-1620 that's the acunate mortgage talk and text line okay i want you to look in your in your crystal ball because after i talked to don smiley had a lot of feedback and people were saying jeff they're, they're overly optimistic there, there's there's no way 
that we're going to be able to be through this. We're not going to be able to get enough people vaccinated. People aren't going to feel comfortable going out. There's no way that these ethnic festivals, these lakefront festivals, there's no way that they're going to happen in July and August or September. I have people telling me that they think the summer of 2021 is going to be a wash. I don't agree. I think that... If we're able to get our act together with the vaccine rollouts, if the number of COVID cases continues to stabilize and then decrease and the number of hospitalizations are down, I, I think by this summer, by this summer, I think these events can go on and occur. Maybe not by, you know, early parts of the summer, but I'm not writing off Summerfest saying that they can't do it in September. My guess is things are going to be closer to normal, certainly by the time July rolls around. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, wishful thinking or, Jeff, I think you've nailed it. 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, Summerfest kicking back to September. As it stands now, the the ethnic festivals currently scheduled for July are currently scheduled for July. Uh, State Fair currently scheduled for August. The question is: Is summer twenty twenty one going to happen? I think by the middle to certainly the end of summer. I, I think. I think we're going to be in a position we're going to be able to go ahead and, and do this. And it's dependent on the numbers continuing to come down, the vaccine rollout, the fact that you're going to have these outdoor venues. Yeah, I, I think July is reasonable. I think Summerfest was smart. I think they just they couldn't guarantee, number one, that this was going to happen in June. Um, and also, I, I think there was some concern about would the, would the national touring acts, would they be back on the road by June? I think by July, August, September, I think that's a more likely scenario. Let's start with Jim in Milwaukee. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, thanks for taking my call. I wonder if sure. uh, this year wouldn't be a good year for Summerfest to uh, kind of rethink uh, a mission just for this year. Uh, how many up-and-coming bands would love to play in front of a venue that maybe is only 25% capacity, but it gives them a break to uh, play at Summerfest. People, I think, are just going to be anxious to get out and hear anybody. Uh, and think of what that would be years from now when a discovered band who makes it big says, I got my big break in the summer of 2021 from Summerfest because I got to play instead of, you know, some big name band just would would seem to be a really neat opportunity. Well, the, the problem with that, Jim, is that it costs a lot of money to stage an event, whether it's State Fair or Summerfest or, or whatever, and you, you have to bring in a certain amount of money to make it to make it work. And I guess my question would be if you only had local or regional bands, and, I, and I'm, look, I'm a fan of local music, so I'm not dissing local or regional bands, but if, if you didn't have those big headliners, would you attract enough people to make it financially worthwhile to do it? I guess that's my that would be my big question. Well, I think you could because people are so homebound and are just looking to get out. Uh, to me, if there's a year to take that uh, approach, 
this would be it. Yeah, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Well, I, I think, you know, I mean, the, the hope is that, that you want to restore some sense of, of, of normalcy, and, and that's it. And I, and I don't know when that's going to occur. I guess I think I'm, I'm thinking about State Fair, for example, which is, again, it draws a million people. And the question is, okay, we sit here, it's February, early February, so February to March, April, May, June, July, August. State Fair starts about six months from today approximately, maybe give or take a day. So in the next six months, do we think we can get enough people vaccinated and enough of a handle on this to allow people to go back? And, and my answer is, yeah, I think I think we can. Now, having said that, I think the reality that the planners are going to have to deal with is I do think, and I appreciate what Jim was saying, that there's this incredible pent-up desire to go out and see entertainment and all. I, I do think that there's going to be some time uh, I, that is to say, I, I'm not sure you're going to see a million people that are going to be rushing out. Because even once you get the vaccinations, I think there's going to be people who are going to sort of dip their toe into the, the bathwater that is going to large events. I think they're going to do that kind of slowly. 855-616-1620. Leanne on the south side. Leanne, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, I when Summerfest first started, I handed out brochures downtown for Summerfest. And it was local bands and bands from different area states and that that played. At that time, they played in different parks and stuff like that. But it would be a real boost to Milwaukee to have the bands playing, the local bands from the area, and that give them a big boost here in Milwaukee to play at Summerfest. We have so much different music, it would be nice. Yeah, well, thanks for calling. And again, I I mean, the problem, again, with that is... And this is not a knock on on the various local bands. I am a fan of our local bands and local entertainers, and I, during appropriate times in the summer, for example, I will routinely seek out local performers and and go and and see the shows. And I have several who are are, are my favorites, and I'm regulars at that show. But that's not not Summerfest. That's not going to, you know, having an event in Brown Deer Park you know, might draw a couple hundred people to see an entertainer. It's not going to draw, you know, tens of thousands. So it's a, it's a different sort of experience. And again, if you want to, if the city wants to like organize some stuff or, around some of the local entertainers, I think that's great. But the, the truth is, Summerfest is is Summerfest. It is a different animal. It is this huge festival that's out there, and it's it's not going to be able to operate unless you can get a, a large number of people that are are down there. And again, I, I think that that's the situation. Jeff, you nailed it. The festival organize, organizers are facing a lot of pressure, but I think they're going to step up and proceed. There are a lot of people who are willing to go to festivals. Um, yeah, um, Jeff, they're musicians. Lowball them. <laughs> You're overvaluing the bands. Um, okay, they've all learned that they'll non-essential. They'd be happy to take less rather than nothing. Well, you know, I mean, here, look. Here's the economics of, of the concert industry. To have, to have a. First of all, you have to have touring acts. And let's talk about the, the big names that are going to fill the amphitheater. It costs a ton of money to have those acts go out on on the road. That's why. Um, when when you're like a Bob Babish at Summerfest and you're booking bands, it, it's not like 
you have a universe of bands to choose from. What you have to do is say, okay, this is a particular band, and I might like them. What's the schedule, and where are they? And that's why bands try to say, okay, we're playing Detroit one night, and then we're going to be in Chicago the next night. Then we're going to be in Milwaukee. Then we're going to be in Minneapolis. Because they, they just, as a general rule, don't do these kind of one-offs. They, they have to cost a certain amount of money to go out on the road. So the first question is going to be, how many bands are going to be out on the road? That And, and that means you're going to have to have a lot of other venues that you know could can put 15 or 20,000 people or whatever the band's going to draw how many venues are going to be out there to make it worthwhile for the bands to tour i don't think it's just something to say hey we're we're going to have summerfest and anybody want to apply come on down i mean you have to book bands that are going to draw people bottom line of all this is and, and, and maybe i'm being overly optimistic in which case i'll i'll plead guilty but um i i think I think by the middle to the end of the summer, assuming that we're able to continue with this vaccine rollout and assuming that we continue to make the progress that we are and assuming that these new strains of, of flu that are out there, the new strains of virus um, aren't aren't able to bypass the, the, the vaccines, assuming we're able to do that, I, 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 think, I think we should be back to some sort of sense of normalcy, able to have these events by the middle of the summer. I sure hope so, which is one of the reasons why, for people who have the opportunity to get the vaccine, I think you should do it, because that's, that's the real answer to when we can get back to normal, which is when do we get a big chunk of people vaccinated or recovered from COVID, and you don't want anybody to have to get COVID and recover to develop some sort of immunity. All right, when we come back, it's Wisconsin's Afternoon News with John McCure and Melissa Barkley. We'll find out what they have on their mind in just a minute. Please stick around.